0: to the Pharmacy Podcast Network.
1: You are listening to the
0: NASP podcast. This specialty pharmacy podcast is a collaboration with the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy and the Pharmacy Podcast Network. The mission of the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy is to improve specialty pharmacy practice by promoting continuing professional education and certification of specialty pharmacists while advocating for public policies that ensure patient access to specialty medications. As the healthcare industry's leading podcast dedicated to the pharmacy profession, the Pharmacy Podcast Network is proud to bring our listeners the NASP Podcast in collaboration with the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy.
1: Hey, Pharmacy Podcast listeners, this is the Biopharmaceutical Education Podcast Workshop Series 2023 in partnership with Acela Health and the NASP, uh, National Association of Specialty Pharmacies. I love bringing on our um, our host, uh, Michael Baldzicki with Accela Health, He brings us some of the most interesting people in specialty pharmacy, and he has to build out this multi-part series. This is part number three. Don't worry if you haven't heard part number one and two. We will have links to those in the show notes as you're listening on any of the podcast players. If you like Apple, Spotify, we've expanded to some new ones out there. Tell us where you like to listen to your podcasts. Um, This is an exciting episode talking about why rare ultra orphan therapies Need early market access and planning, as well as those innovation uh, solutions that come from our stakeholders. Mike, welcome back! Thank you so much for all the work that you put into this series.
2: Todd, thanks for having me, and thanks for having Excel Health as a partner with Pharmacy Podcast Network and the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy. And again, you know, as we kind of get into podcast uh, number three of a, a series of six that we're doing on biopharmaceutical educational podcast workshop series. It just doesn't get any better with the two participants I have joining me today uh, Jim Clement, partner and board member of Coas Holdings, and also Donovan Quill, executive vice president at Excel Health. So, as you noted, Todd, you know, we're really going to uh, dive into why ultra orphan uh, therapies need early market access planning and innovation solutions on this episode. And it couldn't hit a better time, especially. Uh, the recent approval in June, the FDA-granted BioMarin under Octavian for hemophilia A at a $2.9 million price tag. Uh, and again, just looking at the therapies in development, we have over 3,700 in preclinical, uh, majority uh, obviously in the oncology pipeline. But don't forget, we have about 45% of that pipeline in the next four to five years still in the rare disease like uh, neurology and immunology conditions that are just going to continue to evolve, uh, not only around price, but how manufacturers really need to start thinking and have a real opportunity to partner with healthcare stakeholders like Excel Health and Coles Holdings uh, to continue the support they need, uh, not only educating uh, payers that still need to be driven, but really drive evidence-based pricing and other innovative contractual um, methodologies to address these hurdles, not only of access, but uh, around these unique therapies that we're going to see the first of kind launches at, in the next couple of years. And like I said, I, I think the the real point of growth in gene and cell therapy around especially pharmaceuticals represents a radical shift in treatment. Uh, so, Jim, uh, why don't you go ahead and take the first introduction, uh, give an explanation about yourself and hit it over to Donovan.
0: Thanks, Michael. Yeah, I'm Jim Clement. I'm a partner at Coas Holdings, and um, I've been in the market access space my entire career, um, working with uh, pure-play PBMs at the time, um, followed by a stint in industry at Genentech, and then um, with the payer community as well at a large national payer. The last five years or so, I've been at, at Cois, and we've really been focusing on helping manufacturers bring drugs like these to market. And, and as you mentioned, these drugs are very different and very unique and present their own set of access complexities, financing complexities and and things that we really we really haven't witnessed to date. And so that's really um, I'm excited to be here. I can't wait to talk about this particular topic. We're very passionate about it. I think both organizations are. and uh, they're producing some really really innovative therapies um, that that are really gonna hopefully halt or cure um, some patients that are very sick. So happy to be here. Uh, I'll let Donovan introduce himself and then we'll get going.
3: Yeah. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Jim. Uh, thanks, Mike. And, um, you know, really happy to be here on the podcast. Uh, my background uh, is in, you know, about 20 years in the healthcare sector, mostly rare disease, orphan disease uh, world, um, not by choice, but by birth. Uh, my family uh, has a, a genetic disorder called alpha 1 antitrypsin trypsin deficiency and got into the, uh, the pharmaceutical business to really be a patient advocate for patients with alpha one. And then I realized a lot of the things that we learned from the alpha one community, we could take to the rest of the rare disease community and, um, you know, I've spent some time in the not-for-profit side, spent some time in the, in the orphan, uh, rare disease distribution side, um, consulting pharmaceutical, um, working for pharmaceutical companies and kind of seen the, uh, the world from all different angles, um really focus on the last few years uh, of working with companies from, you know, pre-commercial all the way through commercialization, launching new products and, and seeing how we can plan for the future.
2: No, thank you both. And again, I think this is an interesting topic. So, you know, with that, as we know and seen the cell and gene therapy commercialization is constantly evolving field with most biopharmaceutical uh, life science companies. Um, and, and again, these therapy developers must carefully consider you know, the rewards and risk entering into this market due to the obviously the high costs that we just noted with Roctaviant launch, uh, but other, you know, healthcare provider budgets. So again, there's really no guarantee that the product that they're developing will be even approved, paid for, available, um, and access to patients is always a question mark. So with that, I'm gonna for, uh, hit the first question over to Jim, you know, what are the key priorities for gene and cell therapy uh, pharma manufacturers really facing today and just even looking uh, into the future. Uh, like I said, I mean, we're just at the cusp. We're going to see about 30 more gene and cell therapies launched in 2025, 2027. And then it's anticipated and forecasted that we're going to see 70 plus of these you know, commercialization products in 2030. So yeah, you know, I think there's a large number of hurdles and um, stipulations that must be considered and love to get your expertise on that, Jim.
0: Yeah, thanks, Michael. Um, Yeah, we really are in an exciting time. And, you know, there's a few therapies, like you mentioned, Roctavian, that are that are starting to come to market where people have been waiting for quite some time for these particular therapies to hit the market. And, you know, while we have a handful of cell therapies and a handful of gene therapies, and they've been on the market for the last four to six years now, um, and when I say a few, I mean I think what the the FDA has approved thirty two, with a lot of them being, you know, in the cord blood um, sector of the market. But there's a handful of these that that you know we're starting to see cell therapies move upline in treatment pathways like multiple myeloma, um, higher prevalence disease states like you mentioned. The gene therapies coming out for sickle cell and hemophilia. And with that comes both excitement, particularly for patients, but also scrutiny from payers. But it's really exciting watching some of these earlier medicines like YesGarda become standard of care, uh, as well as more recently approved therapies like Carvicti, with the potential to move into second line. I mean, it's really amazing for these patients that are, that are able to access these drugs as far as some key priorities for pharma, you know, I think every pharma or gene therapy company is a little bit different, depending on the disease state that they're entering in, the site of care, so on and so forth. But but I think some key priorities really should be, you know, what does it look like to d- develop the product lifecycle evidence map? And that's really critical. You know, manufacturers are beginning to understand the evidence requirements. Don't stop upon regulatory approval. And, and really in fact become more intense following approval to ensure patient access. So you know, just simply reforming registrational trial data to address product launch communication efforts, it's grossly inadequate. Manufacturers really need to plan for collecting real-world evidence from the get-go and for collecting disparate data from multiple sources to communicate both clinical utility and value to different stakeholders. I would say tangential to the evidence map is manufacturers really need to focus on their communication and education strategy. And I think that's something been, that's been overlooked. And you know this is even inclusive of, you know, tailored value propositions by audience. You know, the market is well aware that cell and gene therapies are coming to market. But but most are not entirely aware of the promise that these medicines pose, you know. And so while self-insured employer groups and state Medicaid directors and other major stakeholders are aware of these, there's a knowledge gap out there that exists. You know, even, even something as simple as treatable population, people are having a hard time getting their arms around. You know, we have 100,000 sickle cell Um, patients in the United States, well, not all of them are going to get the gene therapy. And certainly not all of them are going to get it in the first year. So we have to, manufacturers have to have a communication and education strategy by audience so that these pairs don't overreact and, and potentially because of that overmanage. You know, so it's how do you develop the appropriate messaging to facilitate better understanding for access?
2: No, Jim, I think you bring up a really important point, and I've been involved in it in the last two or three years specifically around not only rare disease, but gene and cell therapy coming out is that educational piece. I mean, even employers, brokers, you know, stop loss, medical group underwriters, besides your typical payer, you know, is that educational piece. As you noted, they think, you know, the first hemophilia gene therapy coming out that all these patients were going to get on it. And, right. and that's not necessarily the point, right? Uh, right. There's so many stipulations, criteria, and other elements that must be in, included uh, from that perspective of looking at and and appropriately having you know almost as we say access value when you launch these products. You know, Donovan, I, I'd love to get your expertise on this topic.
3: Yeah, I, I think communication is key, and and you know, one what, what, one of the things that you know really comes out is how uneducated. We all are, you know, and and we're in the industry. So we we, we see it from behind the scenes. We see it from, you know, the, a different angle than the, the normal population. So, you know, speaking from a patient perspective, you know, and having said my family has a genetic disorder and they've been studying, you know, gene therapy for uh, for alpha one for a long time. And just like most gene therapies, you know, it's, it's taken about 15, 20 years and they're starting to now come to fruition where they're going, it's a couple more years out. You know where where when my dad was diagnosed and you know really really going downhill with his health, I look at it. You know it was thirty years ago, and they were t- just talking about cell and gene therapy and how cool it would be to, you know, be able to manipulate a you know a gene and and cure you know a disease or cure a part of the disease or unfold a unfold the you know genetic marker that's that's causing the issues. And what people don't realize is that that was being done. The, the products that are being approved today we're in we're in, you know, the lab 20, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it takes that long for some of these products to get approved. And one of one of the biggest disconnects I always see with, especially with the product or, or pharmaceutical manufacturer, is as they're coming to fruition, as as they're they're putting these products together, the scientific team doesn't really talk to the commercial team. When I say the commercial team, I mean the team that markets the product, the team that, you know, all of a sudden when the product does get approved by the FDA, it switches from being, you know, a product being studied from a group of scientific, you know, group of scientists and group of folks that are going through clinical trials and things like that to a commercially based team where, you know, there's a medical director, but it's mostly... You know, marketing folks, sales folks, um, you know, promotional folks that are that are getting things done, folks that are going in and, you know, market access folks that are going in to, you know, fight the insurance carrier. And all that information that was gathered during that clinical trial phase is so important. There's so much real world evidence in there that can be used to look at, um, you know, criteria for the insurance plans. There's so many you know, so much information there that can map that patient journey and map that understanding of how that the the support that's going to be needed throughout, you know post-treatment, you know, following that patient for five to ten years, understanding that, you know the cell therapy works for a lot longer than we we thought um, doesn't need a booster, doesn't need a, you know, a, a secondary you know shot or injection or cell manipulation. You know, there's there's so many things that go on on that, that we don't communicate to the public and we don't communicate to each other. And I think that's it, it's just it's a downfall in, in our system and how we do things. And, you know, one of the things I know, you know, I, I've known Jim for a long, long time and, and we've worked together on a lot of different projects. Um, And, you know, that's one of the things that we've always said is we need to make sure that the commercial folks are talking to the scientific folks who are including the patients early and as early as possible, understanding their needs, who are including the physicians and understanding the physician's needs from a diagnostic standpoint and a treatment standpoint and an educational standpoint. And then also then looking at it from what do we learn from all those folks that we we can take to the payer market and really get an understanding of who benefits from this so we can make sure that the folks that are benefiting of it have coverage and have access to those therapies, but all of those communication points really start from day one, and unfortunately, we wait till a certain point where the FDA approves it for us to start talking about it. And I think that's where we really, really have to focus: is how early do we get in, in, in involved, and how early does the, the groups like ours, you know, that have that expertise of, you know, access and communication um, and, and the help that we can provide, how early do we get there? And you know it's in—I believe it's in phase one, phase two. Um, you know, really, really pulling in a, a cohort of individuals who can help those companies and the patient groups get together and form a, a really well-understood plan going forward. And you know, unfortunately, we don't do that now, but hopefully, we can do that into the future.
0: I'm, I'm with you, Donovan. I really do feel that it's it's exiting phase one and entering phase two. Yeah. It's not just from a clinical trial design standpoint; it's from a launch design standpoint.
2: Yep. Yeah, I think you guys, again, you know, certain areas of this discussion that you just went over must be tempered against you know the practical hurdles that I think these pharmaceutical manufacturers are facing. And I think the biggest one. I was just on a phone with a client yesterday on this topic, launching a gene cell therapy, and again, we're we're getting into. You know, the key things that we, you know, know have been involved with, you know, project management around market access value. Again, targeted patient populations, revenue forecasting, what's the product strategy for commercialization, uh, distribution, your channel partners, right? Data and clinical development. You know, the, the over you know, overarching theme that keeps on coming up, and we've seen this even with recent launches of the two three million dollar products is the payer right pair that they're noting that these gene therapy affordability will be a major challenge in the next couple of years how do you think this will be addressed in the market you know especially for those coming in the next 3 to 5 years and com- you know making their product commercially available this is the hurdle and again you know we faced this you know 10 15 years ago in specialty pharmacy rare disease when we we're just talking about I and mean, looking at certain you know MS drugs that were 50, 80 thousand Now we're on the millions of dollars. And I think this is to the point, you know, Donovan, you made is really tempering when does a manufacturer work with an agency at work like Cohes or in Excel Health in phase one and phase two to get ahead of this and start educating the components. Cause I think it's really needed because that tagline of just affordability and access is the one that always sticks out in, in gene cell therapy market. Love your insight, Jim, on that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's there's a couple of, you know, you look at the therapy pipeline, like you said, and about two-thirds of the therapies are going to have government-sponsored insurance as the primary payer. You know, a third of that being Medicaid, a third of that being Medicare, in um, the over sixty-five population, and a third, you know, looking at the commercial space, um, and then you can further, you know, subdivide the commercial space into fully and self-insured. And the self-insured environment is a whole different animal. So, you know, in terms of a affordability and you know bringing these therapies to market, you know, state programs are going to be dealing with a significant headwind, given the upfront cost of these therapies. And and the impact of that is going to be further complicated by the fact that, you know, you mentioned the roctavian that's coming out now or the sickle cell therapies. You know, these therapies are coming out this year. Well, state budgets were set two years ago for the 2023 year. So how does that complicate things? And that's why I can't underscore enough to start early. You can always put program components and implementation dates on the shelf or into the future, but you can't create more time. And a lot of manufacturers, to Donovan's earlier point, they're so focused on getting over the clinical goal line. And it's a question. It's up in the air whether they're actually going to be able to get it across the goal line from an approval standpoint. And so they don't often think about how to launch the medicine. And so, you know, that's really where the sooner you can understand your access challenges and your logistical hurdles, you know, the better informed your entire organization will be from from the C-suite to your patient hub to finance. So, you know, it's, I I look at the state programs again, and I don't, I I think they're going to be unduly impacted in the near term. Um, and I, I think that, you know, with budgets being set a couple of years earlier, well, then this is going to probably intensify the discussion around health equity, you know, as access could be delayed to patients most in need. And it's here where I think, you know, in terms of affordability, that these alternate alternative payment options like value-based or performance-based Based payments may first appear, you know, and the federal government is probably going to need to be able to step in in such a way to really increase their support of states, and you know, potentially even increase the federal match percentage. Um, you know, from a commercial standpoint, I think we're seeing a lot of different methodologies or approaches at that are attempting to deal with the affordability challenge. You know, we're already seeing demand for value-based payments or warranties being attached to these new-to-market therapies. You know, the reinsurance community is all but really demanding it, um, that this occur at a minimum. And I think that's just the start. And this will set in motion potential models that may be even adopted by our government programs.
2: Donovan, any comments on
3: that? Yeah, I mean, you know, Jim, you hit all the, the major points. I, I think you know one of the one of one of the key things there is you know having these folks prepared for it, as as Jim mentioned, um, being ready uh, and being at the ready. But also goes back to our former kind, you know, our, the, the former subject of, of communication and understanding, you know. I know people get up in arms when they hear the price of of drugs and they hear the price of these products, but like we said before, some of these things have been in the in in the workings for thirty years. And you know, think about it: thirty years of of lost revenue. Like it's not it's not like they're they're making money over those thirty years on the product. They're just paying out money to do clinical trials, work in labs, pay 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 you know the the fees to get it from phase to phase, pay you know. Pay the government agencies to get approval. So understanding that, and and and, you, and and understanding how much goes into getting a product approved here in the U.S. market, we also have to understand that some of these companies need to make the money back so they can then reinvest that money for more innovative products. And if we're not here as 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 shown innovation and and having that understanding of, you know, these products do cost money, we're we're gonna you know we're gonna be sunk as a as a as an innovative. You know, drug development world. On the flip side of that, it's our fiduciary duty on the on the in the pharma community and in the pharmaceutical world to make sure that our product is affordable, and we keep thinking of ways to help patients and help you know payers pay for this. And you know, whether it's a pay over time model, whether it's a you know a specific on a a gene and cell therapy, it's only going to help these specific patients. So these specific patients are going to make sure that you know we're going to make sure that those patients are actually covered. Those patients are going to make sure that they have access to therapy, and it's going to be affordable. And we're going to have to work deals through you know government agencies, private insurances, and and, and folks like that to make sure that you know whether we whether we basically say, hey, we know this is a one-time cost of three million dollars, five million dollars, whatever it may be, a million dollars. We're going to make sure that hey, we know we know that product's working we're going to make sure that you monitor this patient for the next five years. And you produce, you know, certain reports to us to show that this show that cell therapy is, is working within the patient and we can pay over time on, you know, say a monthly basis to make it more palatable. And when the patient, you know, I know that big argument is always, Hey, well, what happens when the patient changes insurance? Well, the commercial insurance plans are going to have to get together and put put a you know a caveat in there that if we absorb a patient or we lose or we lose a, or we transfer a patient to a different insurance we're going to absorb those costs because we know that patients still going through those episodes of care due to the fact that the cell and, and gene therapy is still working within their system so there's there's a lot of opportunities for us to redo what we see within the insurance and what we see in the coverage world to make it more palatable for the payers we also have them have the manufacturers agree to, you know, saying, hey, I know I might not get my payment today, I may, but I'm going to get payment over time for this patient. And the manufacturers have to understand that it may be palatable for someone to get coverage that way, and we have to do it that way. Um, or you have third-party players come in and say, hey, we'll pick up the, you know, the the payment plan for this, make the manufacturer whole, and we'll work with the payer on a on a plan that's going to be paid over time. And I know there's some, you know, we have we have some plans that are looking at certain things like that. I know there's other companies out there that, you know, have a pay over time model. Um, and it's just a matter of companies like ours and some other folks that really come in and say, you know, we understand that this is a high cost product. We understand that this is a life-saving therapy, we understand that this is a life-altering therapy, whatever it may be. And we're going to make sure that it's affordable and it's palatable for the payer and it's it gets the patient access to the product. But we all need to work together to make sure that we do those things the right way and we don't get into situations where, you know, halfway down the the road we're going, we're not going to pay for that or the patient, you know, moved from here to there and now it's not our responsibility. It's all of our responsibilities in the pharmaceutical world to make sure that we're doing something right, to make sure patients have access to product, making sure that they're affordable and making sure that we can make, you know, give the patients who need the product, you know, based on the approval of the FDA. To get those patients that access
0: that they need. You know, yeah, it. It. go ahead, Jen. That's something interesting, and I, it just triggered a thought in terms of, um, you know, if you look at some of the past therapies that have launched that that are curative. You know, take Hep C. Yep. You know, mention payment over time models. I think they really, I think manufacturers could be open to that because. Mm-hmm. You know, in the Hep C instances, those manufacturers that were offering cures saw these huge boluses of patients, and these huge—you know—I'm not going to turn this into a financing podcast by any stretch, but <laughs> but you know they the had ebbs and flows of the of of revenue, and it, you know exactly. And so, payment over time is almost a way to smooth the revenue, yes, um, to allow them to have some consistency so they can continue their R and D efforts. Absolutely.
2: Well, Jen, I think you both bring up a really good topic of where I think, again, you know, the challenge with these manufacturers, and and Donovan, you said a key word that I grabbed is innovation, you know, really finding those healthcare stakeholders, those new vendor relationships like Excel Health or co really drive innovative thinking around these types of therapies. Because again, I think what we're seeing, you know, the key factors that will drive uptake and market penetration is not just around costs, it's looking at, you know, your demonstrated efficacy, your safety and risk, durability, dosing, administration of the product, right? But I think we're going to, you know, take those elements of those factors and drive towards a very unique solution around value-based contracting or other things that you mentioned, Donovan, of the alternative financial models that we're seeing more and more come out to gain affordability of a $3 million price tag product. And, and that's just drug. Right. So I think again, you know, what we're seeing is you know a shift in paradigm of thinking with typical manufacturers of saying, I have to be innovative. I have to really look at my vendor selection process now and setting doing the status quo and come up with very innovative ideas to drive these solutions if I'm going to have access and really again address the payer scrutiny of just affordability because they're going to stop it if. Again, you know, the the issue is what I'm hearing is we're used to these type of products. We've had them in the market, you know, hemophilia and other million-dollar price tag products that uh, hip stop loss. This is nothing new, but uh, it's always penetrated very small patient populations. And if you're watching the pipeline, the patient eligibility is going to increase 20, 40, 50, maybe 80,000 based on the product that they're coming out with in the next five, eight, 10 years. So again, when you have a two, three, $5 million price tag that can actually be and applied to say an 80,000 patient population eligibility criteria, that's a big ticket item to afford. So again, yeah. I, I love your guys' expertise and just you know, insight from your experience of what are some of the common challenges that we're even observing in these gene and cell therapy spaces now, what needs a shift?
3: Yeah. And, and and what we don't, what we what we don't know, and this is where we need the post, you know, real world evidence, as we, as we mentioned, now I look at this as post-real world evidence. So post-approval, still monitoring these patients, but let's monitor it not just from a therapeutic standpoint, not just from a cost affordability standpoint, but also let's look at it from a, a total health economic standpoint. So when, you know, and I'm just taking hemophilia just to, you know, point it out. When a patient had a, has a bleed and they go through an episode of, you know, they have a bleed and they have to be admitted in the hospital or and, and receive factor and they have to receive therapy. They may be in the hospital for a period of time and they may be, for, you know, that, that's extra cost. They're out of work. That's extra cost. They're, you know, they're not um, not able to return to work in some cases, you know, depending on what they do. So that's that's a whole different career change. So when you look at these cell and gene therapies that are going to be curative or they're going to be you know life altering of some sort. Let's look at the entire economics behind this. Are we going to cut down readmittances in the hospital? So therefore, you know your Medicare Medicaid patients, you you cut down that readmittance rate. Are we going to stop you know unscheduled hospital visits or doctor's visits? So therefore, you're going to help with economics there. So it's not just the cost of the drug that is, you know, being reimbursed, what are the health economics going outward that are actually being contained? Those costs are being contained and those costs are being reduced to where at some point you're going to come to a break-even and you're going to say, all right, this this actually works well after a five, six year period. You know, the patients, the patients not going on disability, the patients not being admitted into the hospital, the patients not, you know, out of work, the patients not, you know, changing jobs on a regular basis. The, the patient's lifestyle is better, you know, so, and, and now they're a more productive member in society in terms of, you know, paying taxes, paying bills, paying this, paying that, like the, all of those things can happen with the innovative therapies. And we see it with some, you know, we see, we see it with some different, you know, regular, you know, everyday therapies, we see patients actually being able to return to the workforce or staying off a disability longer. Um, you know, so selling gene therapies just have that much more promise to where, when they're cured or life altering, you know, that that overall health economics is really going to show at some point.
2: Yeah, Donovan, I, I can't tell you how important that statement was of just again what needs to be addressed when looking at an approach and consideration uh, for pharmaceutical manufacturers of demonstrating that long term benefit of managing not only care coordination within the distribution of the product. But the data collection, because there are so many uncertainties around these barriers, uh, and, and continue to be challenged of overcoming the barriers of just data analytics. So I think again, some of the approaches where you know manufacturers got to consider in their vendor selection is looking at the distribution specifically on the care coordination that is needed amongst like service sites, you know, care providers, pharmacies, payers, patients. Again. The ever component uh, that is changing in this environment that we're seeing in, in gene cell therapy launches. You know, my, my last question for both of you, and I'll start with Jim, is, you know, what needs to be done? What's the three main points that you think moving forward the next three to five years, with manufacturers coming out with a commercialization component in gene cell therapy that they need to demonstrate the long term benefit and managing data collection uncertainties in this space.
0: Um. That's a great question, Mike. And I I think it's, you know, I think there exists this strong misperception out there right now that these therapies and the results that they're producing are not being monitored. And, And that really couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, nearly all gene therapies are launching with programs to ensure durability and efficacy, you know, as well as value to the ultimate payer it's really the price of entry nowadays if you're going to have broad coverage and overcome access challenges. Um, and that's true, really, regardless of the payer segment. Manufacturers not offering these types of assurances to the market, you know, be it outcomes, agreements, or warranties, are going to have a really difficult time creating the access that they expect. So, you know, in answer to your question, the wheels are already in motion around defining and improving long-term benefits. Data collection is going to continue to evolve to support these efforts in new and novel ways, up to including you know, things like blockchain. Um, I know that's a word that's thrown around a lot and people don't exactly, they think they associate it with Bitcoin, um, but it really does have other use cases uh, and very good ones at that. And I think this is one particular area where innovation in terms of long-term benefit and managing data collection, that's one area where um, you know, I know we're focusing on here at Coast Healthcare. You know, and then you have things like wearables um, that will contribute data. You know, that measure things like limb velocity. You know, and collecting information directly from the patients and caregivers themselves is really important, and I think underutilized in today's market. You know, the FDA is increasingly looking to patients to really describe their health status. Well, if a patient and a caregiver reported data is good enough to support approval, it should be good enough to support access and reimbursement. You know, the system has a right to be concerned about efficacy and durabilities, and payers should have the right to be justly compensated if there's failure. But we need to collectively focus on the successes and those contributions to society um, and really to kind of prove out that these therapies are delivering on the prom- on the promise to slow halt or, you know, again, even cure some of these very devastating illnesses.
2: Donovan, anything to add? Yeah, I you know, looking at all of Jim's
3: points, you know, it's it's all the things that I was I agree with. Um you know, some of the other areas to look at, you know, Jim mentioned wearables, and, and I think that's a that's an awesome area where you can actually monitor patients without them even thinking about it. The the other ways are you know patient engagement, you know, tools where we can push and pull information. So we all walk around with a smartphone. You know, there's 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 tons of different tools that we could use that push and pull information and you know can can be as simple as. You know, you hit a button, yes or no, at certain times a day or certain times a month of answering a question, or you know, getting back and forth with things. One of the big things I think, you know, that we 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 forget about, you know, we we talk about AI and everybody's, you know, depending where you where you are on the uh, the political front, AI could be good or bad. But I think there's an opportunity for AI to work. You know, where it can help with people. Uh, You know, I have some friends that work in the big financial sectors. And they're starting to think about ways that they can utilize spending habits and show people like and correlate that to to their health and health and lifestyle. Um, You know, so with some of these cell and gene therapies, can you look at spending habits? Can you look at like how, you know, going from pre, you know, therapy to post therapy? What are some of the things that you did differently? You know, what are some of the things that stayed the same? You also, you know. EMR systems, you know, we, 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 we made a conscious effort to, you know, make sure that physicians were using the EMR system, you know, 10 years ago, where, where, you know, we got out of the paper files, we got out of the notes, we made sure that there's, you know, these EMR systems that should be able to talk to them talk to each other throughout, you know, different hospital systems and groupings. And we should be able to take, you know, information from that and pull, and understand, you know, patient backgrounds. We should be able to pull diagnostic tools. We should be able to pull healthy, you know, health scores and things like that from those. So as cell and gene therapies, you know, take off and rare disease therapies take off, we should be able to pull pull some information there and do health economic studies. One of the things that we really, you know, unfortunately always go to is technology. And one of the things that I know that I I push to make sure that we keep a balance on. It's still that personal touch. So is there patient interaction through peer health coaching, through, you know, care coordination, through personalized individuals that are working in a, you know, a call center, a hub, or somebody working for the manufacturer, whatever it may be, and whatever we call them, it doesn't matter. They could be patient advocates, they could be peer health coaches, they could be, you know, care coordinators, they could be patient service specialists, whatever that might be. We still need to make sure with these rare diseases especially these ultra rare diseases that we have some type of personal touch to it. And I can tell you from, you know, firsthand experience, that's what really kept, you know, my family members going is they could actually talk to someone. Um, and, and when you look at these rare diseases, you know, I know we talked about hemophilia and there's a lot more hemophilia patients than we would then, then say, you know, alpha one patients or, you know, there's Cushing, or Cushing syndrome or something like that. But these ultra rare diseases where there's a thousand patients or 500 patients being treated, there still needs to be that personal touch. That person who can call them, that can walk beside them, that can do those things with that basically handles the things for those patients because they have no one else that they've ever met with the disorder that they have. So while we think about all of the technology we can use, we still have to go back to that personal touch. But the main point is, how do we take care of the patient? And are we patient first in all of our thinking? And as long as we're doing that, everything else will fall in place. And I'm a true believer in that if we do everything that we're thinking of to make sure that that patient has access, that patient has care, and that patient has somebody behind them helping them along the way, or a team behind them helping along the way, all of these things will fall into place in the right way. And we'll actually be able to make it affordable. We'll make sure that there's access, And we'll make sure that there's that support that everyone else needs who who does care for that patient, from a physician to a manufacturer to a payer and to the everyday caregiver. So I I think those are the things we really, really need to look at is making sure that we're there for the patient.
2: Yeah, Donovan, I I can't express that more. And that's why, uh, you know, in in my 24 years, I've really hung on that patient first mentality in, in any organization I represent. Uh, and I think uh, as we move, uh, you know, into you know additional insights, not only in rare and ultra orphan uh, markets, but you know the gene and cell therapy uh, component that will continue to grow, it, we really got to put that patient first. And I can't thank you and Jim uh, for your you know continued insights uh, on on this market, and and making stakeholders obviously understand the challenges. But you know more than anything, there there are steps that pharmaceutical companies can take. Uh, to increase the likelihood of success and why it's important to have you know a market access strategy and, and how to develop one and when to start and, and who can help. Uh, there's got there's different vendors out there that are innovative enough like Excel Health and and others uh, that can really uh, provide some additional innovative innovative solutions around these parameters. Um, so with that, I want to thank again uh, the Pharmacy Podcast Network uh, in collaboration with the National Association, especially pharmacy Uh, This is uh, podcast number three. And don't forget, uh, in August, we'll be uh, set up for uh, podcast number four uh, with some other industry experts, you know, really kind of in line with what we just went through. Uh, That topic is really addressing the economic and clinical value of market access uh, to ensure, you know, entry to uh, therapy in these type of uh, market segments. So right in line with uh, some of the discussion points made today. And again, Jim, Donovan, thank you. And Todd, I hand it back over to Mm PPN.
1: Thank you. This has been great, Uh, Jim and Donovan. Thank you so much for being part of this uh, special series and being our number three insights. This is important. If you're listening, you are a specialty pharmacy focused pharmacist can say that fast three times. If you are, reach out to us, reach out to Michael, reach out to me, reach out to these other gentlemen if you wanted to network with them. But this is how we help to change things is we have to support each other. We have to share content that actually makes sense. This is important for the future of specialty pharmacy. We're proud to be a part of this. Uh, Michael, can't wait to hear you on episode four.
2: Thank you, Todd. And, and just keep a note that uh, you know as we move into the last three series, uh, number five will be live at the National Association of Specialty Pharmacy happening out in Dallas at the Gaylord on September 18th through the 24th and hope to see everyone live out there. Again, thank you to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. What a great series this has uh, continued to evolve into.